Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. We are still not fully into the grasp of the municipal election. That is coming up late next month. So far, probably, you've really seen very little as far as municipal election stuff. I don't see, I haven't seen any signs yet. Maybe they're out, but I haven't seen any. There's been very little in the way of candidate involvement, candidate engagement, candidate public stuff. Just hasn't really gotten going yet. It'll start. And when it does, we will be immersed. But right now, not so much. But one candidate has been very out there so far as far as making his face visible, his voice visible, his platform visible. And today he did something very interesting with another candidate. For the first time that I can remember, a candidate for council and a candidate for school board trustee have released simultaneous endorsements vowing to work closely together for the betterment of everybody if they are both elected. That's Brad Clark, who's running for Ward 9, and Cam Galindo, who's running for school board trustee. They are not officially running as a ticket. You don't have to vote for both of them. There's nothing like that. But it's an intriguing move that I don't remember seeing something like this before. Peter Greff is an associate professor of political science uh, at McMaster University. He joins me now. Peter, thanks for doing this today. My pleasure. Uh, is my memory faulty or is this kind of new? Because I don't remember anything like this before. Not here. Yeah, me neither, really. I mean, I think just having candidates working together is not something that uh, we've seen much of. And then the idea of sort of promoting some kind of form of cooperation between a school board candidate and a candidate for the city council is also, uh, you know, relatively new. I mean, generally, I don't think we think of these two things as... Uh, you know, that related to each other, even though on some things like the use of school lands and the disposal of them uh, or ways of co-locating, you know, schools and community centers and so forth, there are places of overlap. But generally, uh, we've seen them as pretty separate spheres. So what was your immediate reaction when you saw, when you heard about this today? What was the, what did you think when you heard this as far as a new idea? Well, I mean, I, I was somewhat surprised in that, you know, we haven't seen uh, this before. It wasn't clear to me what the actual content was of it. Uh, I mean, I don't think many people running for council would be setting out not to work in partnership with school board trustees and vice versa. I mean, I don't think they've necessarily done a great job of working with each other, but uh, it's not, you know, not that they've been working across purposes either. So, I mean, it, it was it was hard for me to see exactly what the gain was, and I guess that might have been my surprise for you know, either of the people involved. I mean, obviously, uh, Cam Galindo running for school board had started out running for uh, the seat of, in Ward 9 and had knocked on, you know, many thousand doors. Uh, you know, it may be that for Brad Clark, uh, you know, he doesn't want to look like he's the sort of old guy coming back and taking the steam from the young guy. But again, it's, it's hard to see what he gets out of it, except perhaps uh, an interest in beating uh, Mr. Galindo's opponent, uh, Wayne Marston. I mean, who's kind of linked to the NDP, Brad Clark's kind of linked to the, the Conservative Party. So it's hard to see exactly what he gets out of it. It's easier to see what maybe Mr. Galindo mm. gets out of it. I mean, as a, as a young uh, up-and-comer, to have the endorsement of someone who has represented that ward before and generally uh, has a fairly uh, positive image among uh, uh, the citizens of that ward, presumably is a big help for Mr. Galindo's campaign. Unlike what happens down in the States, we don't generally, uh, and not even generally, we don't have political teams, and I'll use that phrase, in municipal politics. We don't have 
provincial or federal parties. We don't have the conservatives or the NDP or the liberals putting together slates or, or tickets. We don't have that kind of thing. Why don't we have that, first of all? What, what's the reason we don't? Is there, is there a reason? Uh, well, I think uh, there's two reasons. I mean, the sort of bigger one is that it's just historically that hasn't been the way. I mean, the, the parties have been active in various ways in putting candidates forward, but for the most part, without party labels. The other is, uh, and the more direct reason why, is with the Municipal Elections Act uh, and the Municipal, Municipal Elections Financing Act makes it very difficult to move money in around in the ways that political parties do. So that candidates can only be receiving uh, uh, funds and donations at the moment from individuals, uh, and it's very hard to you know set up structures such as parties and to fund them and sustain them, uh, given that our elections act uh, doesn't really recognize them as players, uh, you know, and that extends then too to uh, ballots. I mean, you could have mm. people running as a slate or as a party, uh, but when it came time to uh, voting, there wouldn't be the name of that party on the ballot, unlike in provincial or federal elections. So but, again, f- but philosophically, you could, if the NDP wanted to, it could put forward an entire slate for every ward and say, these are our candidates. If you want an NDP-type government, vote for all these. They could do that, as long as they didn't funnel money into those. Uh, yeah, they could do that. Their capacity to do that, I think, is you know limited, as with the Liberals and the Conservatives. I mean, we have had kind of informal parties in Ontario uh, municipal uh, politics. I mean, it would be really the party of the developers. If you looked, you know, historically, you know, in, say, the early 2000s, someone like Robert McDermott at York University looked at the funding of election campaigns and saw that, you know, somewhere around 80% of the funding in a lot of the municipalities around the GTA came from a small number of firms in the development industry tied to leading, you know, candidates. So there was kind of an unofficial party of the developers in municipal politics uh, this election is actually interesting in that it's the first one where we've had the ban on corporate and union donations across the municipalities, and so that kind of party can't exist again, you know, anymore in a kind of the, the quiet. So yeah, we have we have elections that are based really on individuals putting their names forward and being funded by you know individuals uh, in their ridings and in their cities. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Chatting with Peter Grafe, Associate Professor of Political Science at McMaster University about this unique, I think unique is a fair word, maybe unprecedented, but I, I don't know that for sure, move that was done today by Brad Clark and Cam Galindo. Brad Clark is running for Ward 9, Cam Galindo is running for School Board Trustee, where they simultaneously endorse each other and vow that when elected, assuming they are elected, they will work together for the betterment of everyone, they're going to make everything work smoothly. It's going to be a good relationship. And Peter, you know, whether there's nothing wrong legally with this, as far as I understand it, it's totally fine. They have just simply uh, endorsed each other. And I got to say, I can see both the potential benefit for this, especially as you said, for Cam Galindo, who doesn't have the name recognition, but also some risk. But let's go to the first one because municipal politics, fair to say that. I don't know what percentage you want to put on it, is name recognition. You have to have some name recognition to have a chance in municipal politics. Yeah, I mean, certainly in a situation where you don't have parties, uh, you know, which reduce the information costs for voters because it's a brand and you can, you know, get some sort of sense of the brand. Yeah, and in municipal politics without parties, then it becomes a bunch of individuals running and having a name that's recognizable makes a difference. It may help explain why we have so many uh, broadcasters and former broadcasters, uh, you know, in our politics. I mean, it's one way that you make a name and, and are recognized broadly in the community. So that becomes, yeah, a really important feature in uh, in a candidate's success is being able to be known. 
Um, I mean, I think that also contributes to the incumbency advantage mm-hmm. too, that we have in, in our politics, in that people's names are known uh, because they've been they've been elected. I mean, in addition to you know solving people's problems around green bins and so on. So, yeah, in a situation you know without parties, then name recognition becomes really important, and it, it is probably one of the features that means that we have politicians hanging around for a long time. Uh, because if people were were voting on something other than who the people were, but maybe on some ideas of what parties said we should have for Hamilton, you know, what what development should look like, how we could do things differently, you might get people voting in a way that sort of throws out the incumbents, not because the incumbent was doing a bad job, but because people said, you know, maybe there's a different direction the city should be going. And so we might get a politics that's a bit more about ideas for the city as opposed to the personalities of the people running. Well, and to your point, you made it just before the break, and that is uh, Brad Clark is, even though he's not in office right now, is a very well-known politician in this area. He's been running for mayor, he's been a city councillor, he's been an MPP. I can definitely see how Cam Galindo may get something out of this. This could be a help to him to be tied in now and that you're going to see some advertising or whatever where those two are together. I can absolutely see the benefit of this to him. Yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, there's that kind of coattails effect, uh, that kind of form of linkage. I mean, in other ways, it may, you know, hurt Mr. Galindo. I mean, he he presented himself as a fairly middle-of-the-road candidate. You know, for some people who are, you know, unhappy with uh, Mr. Clark because he's seen as close to the Conservative Party or uh, perhaps tied to some of, you know, the consulting he did after he retired from politics, who knows? I mean, you take positions for your clients as a consultant. It's not going to please everyone. Now, there may be a few negatives, but overall, I think uh, it has a very positive effect. And to the extent that people come out to vote because they're voting, wanting to support Mr. Clark, you know, that's also going to help Mr. Galindo if he's able to capitalize on, on the endorsement. Right. If you like, to me, what this does now is I don't know how many votes Cam Galindo brings to Brad Clark. I see it going the other way, and I think that you're right. If you are a voter who says, I like Brad Clark, I like the ideas he has, it seems to me that means, well, if he says Cam Galindo is like-minded, then I'm going to vote for him. And here's the other thing. Uh, we may struggle to get people, Peter, to come out and vote in municipal elections. What was the last one? 22%, something like that, for votership. If we took out the city council members off the ballot and just made it for school board trustees, we might be pushing to hard to get 5%. So I'm guessing anything you can do as a school board trustee to try and draw attention is a good thing. Yeah, I would think so. I mean, I guess the question, you know, that then is raised in this is really what was uh, what was uh, uh, what was uh, Brad Clark's game in this, right? What what does he stand to gain from this? And so uh, it'll be interesting uh, to hear, you know, what the response is. Is it about uh, trying to nurture the career of a of a young politician? Uh, is it his interest in defeating and keeping uh, Wayne Marston off the school board as sort of old partisan foe? Uh, in that in that sort of way, uh, or are there actual specific programs and projects that they have for the ward, where you know they see things that the board could do and things that the city could do, and they could make them happen together to produce, you know, say around you know Heritage Green and uh, you know some of the development on uh, the West Mountain. Are there particular ways in which uh, the board and the city could work together to improve the lives of residents in that part of the town? Let's just for a second here. Let's broaden the concept of this because again, this is new. But I'm wondering if we're not going to see, maybe now that this has been thrown out there, if we may not see other things along these lines pop up in this election. Everybody, you know, imitation happens. If something seems to be working or someone suddenly says, hey, that's a good idea, people will try it. We know 
I think, Peter, that people are getting very, very, very tired of antagonistic politics. And I'm wondering if we could see some some people liking the idea of saying, look, I'm with this person. I think, you know, I'm in ward whatever. This person's in ward whatever. We're both running for council in different wards, but hey, we will work together and we will not fight and we'll work for the betterment of the city. I'm wondering if that might not be something we see down the road to show that this is going to be, I'm a councillor who will work with this person and you're not going to see craziness around the council table. Yeah, I mean, I suppose that could be put forward, although I think it demands a level of, of knowledge and following municipal politics that even, you know, among the, say, 35% of the, the Hamiltonians who voted in the last municipal election, uh, you know, many of those people won't have. And it won't mean much to them for them to say, well, I'm working with this person. They don't, you know, they don't know that person from Adam or Eve, right? So, uh, you know, there's, there's probably limits to the extent to which that would work. Um, you know, but it's interesting that you mentioned this is a way of reducing division. In other ways, it's maybe one of increasing it because, <laughs> because you know, most in my ward, there's a bunch of people running. And, you know, the people who don't like the sitting councillor have said a few things that are critical of how he's run a number of files. But generally, uh, there aren't very strong lines of division because everyone's kind of running their own ship. And as a as a citizen, it's actually hard to get a sense of, well, what are their priorities and what's their vision for the city and how are they, you know, beyond promising that they'll do a good job if I call them up if my trash isn't picked up, what's their actual vision of building the city, you know, beyond the ward? Uh, and so in some ways, uh, forms of cooperation across the city might give us a politics where we would actually have the capacity to say, yeah, I can distinguish between these people because they have different visions of what the city should be. Uh, and you know, again, that's, you know, the, the idea of political parties at a certain point is to is to give us different visions and kind of coherent ones and to allow us then to make choices based on, on those broader visions. So in some ways, I think it would be a politics more about those visions, and that's where the conflict cuts in. Peter, i got to jump in here, yeah. sadly, but no, I really appreciate it. Peter Gray from uh, Political Science Department at McMaster University. Thanks so much for the time. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I'm not breaking any news to you by telling you today was the first day of school. If you drove by any school, suddenly there was a traffic jam first thing this morning on your way to work, among all the other reminders that school was getting started. Well, let me read you a couple paragraphs from a story in the Globe and Mail before I bring in my next guest, because this is fascinating, because as our kids are going back to school and getting into the routine and getting into the learning and getting into the all the stuff that comes with school, let me read this. As kids across the country gear up for another school year in pursuit of an A average, a parallel universe exists where kids don't do homework, don't take tests, and don't worry about grades. For acolytes of unschooling, kids call the shots and direct their own learning. There's no rigid structure, no provincially prescribed curriculum, and no bell at the end of the day. An unschooled kid with a pre-natural interest in the Jurassic period, for example, might spend a few weeks learning about every single dinosaur of that era. Quote, in a nutshell, unschooling is letting the learner choose what they learn, when they learn, how they learn, and where they learn, says Junie Arnall, president of the Unschooling Canada Association. Unschooling. You ever heard of it? They bring in Judy Arnall, again, president of the Unschooling Canada Association. Judy, thanks for doing this today. Well, thanks for having me. When I read that, I know that there are going to be a lot of people, and I have no doubt that you've heard this a million times before, but when I read that, I bet there's a lot of people saying to themselves, that is kind of out there. 
Do you ever hear that? Do, you, do people say to you, that is just really not what I'm used to? Absolutely, yes. We get a lot of um, um, un- unbeliefness of this <laughs> all and uh, skepticism. And most people are very conditioned to think that children need teachers and that they need education delivered in a school. And they don't think of kids as self-directed learners. Well, okay, let's go there because there would be people, and again, I'll play devil's advocate. And to be honest, Judy, as I was thinking through this today, um, a lot of what I'm asking, I kind of lean this way too, because it's a very new concept. The thought that, well, I'll let the kid decide what to do. Don't they rely, don't they want adults to help them guide them down the learning path to know what they should learn and what, how to learn it and when to learn it? Isn't that something we're supposed to do as adults? I think, um, yes, we can offer our wisdom and our experience and our knowledge, but only if the learner wants it. And very often, school is non-consensual. Kids go and they are taught somebody else's agenda where they have an agenda of their own. And they want to learn. They learn from the day they're born to the day we all die. Um, But they want to learn what they want to learn. And when the motivation is internal. Whatever they take in in education, it sticks. It is, it's, they remember it because it's their questions, not somebody else's. Does this not, one of the things we hear a lot about millennials, and I think it oftentimes is an unfair shot, but nonetheless, we know we've heard it, is that the kids today think they are the center of the universe and everything revolves around them. Does this not reinforce that message that, you know what, you don't have to follow any guideline Whatever you want to do is what we'll do. Does that not give this message? Not really. I, th- I think the center of the universe thing is um, a component of parenting. And kids, as they grow older, they learn, they become less egocentric naturally, and they learn there are other people with needs. And just because they take ownership of their learning doesn't mean that they don't care about anybody else. They they do a lot of volunteer work. They do a lot of projects to help people. They get out there in their communities. They are very much um, aware of other people's needs. How did you become involved in this? Where, what was your background? Now, I'm assuming that you actually had a traditional schooling background. Is that a fair guess? Absolutely, yes. Okay. I was brought up through the public system. and, and So how did you I, find this then? Well, by trade, I'm an adult educator, and adult learning is very much um, learner-centered, and yet we don't think kids can learn that way. So when I started watching my kids go to school, come home, and learn what they really want to learn, I thought, why am I doing this? I should, you know, let's just skip the school part and, and learn what you really want to learn. And um, and it it was amazing what they learned paralleled what kids in school were learning. Boats, magnets, solar system. I mean, all kids are interested in those topics, right? Um, But they want to do it on their own agenda, and they want to go as deep and as far as they want. So how does this differ then from homeschooling? Because it sounds in some ways very similar. Well, in homeschooling, a lot of homeschoolers um, tend to follow the provincial curriculum. They, in some places they don't have to, in other places they do. But um, when the government says you have to teach the solar system and flight in grade six, that's what homeschoolers do. Whereas unschoolers, 
we say to our kids, hey, you want to learn about planes and, and solar system? And they say, no. And we say, okay, not going to learn about it. Until, because at some point they're going to have to learn about it, right? Well, maybe not. Um, some, a lot of kids don't need to learn polynomials in their jobs and careers, right? Some kids do need that for STEM careers, but not every child needs it. So it's much more personalized for that child on what they learn and what they need. When they need to learn it, they learn it really fast. See, there's part of what you just said that I, I wish had been in place when I was in school because I can't tell you how many times that when am I ever going to need to know this? <laughs> I still, exactly. I have still never used sine or cosine in my adult life. I don't know why I learned that and I couldn't explain it to you now. That said, there were a lot of things, Judy, that I would have given that answer to. If I had been unschooled, I would have gotten an A plus in phys ed because I would have been doing it all day. So there's got to be some kind of guiding, I would think, from the parent to some of these things. Um, parents can offer things, but if the child doesn't want them, they let it go. So um, it's not that we don't expose kids to different things, but if they want no part, we're not going to force it, not like in school. Um, and, and kids, if they don't want to learn polynomials or, you know, sine, cosine, really, when, when are they ever going to need it? If, the, if they're going to be a mathematician, yes, they're going to need it and they're going to want it. But if they don't, they don't. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We're chatting with Judy Arnall, who is president of the Unschooling Canada Association. Unschooling, the idea that you can allow your children at home, under your roof, under your leadership, under your guidance, to learn what they want at the pace they want, so that when they want to learn it, they will absorb it as opposed to having math or science or English or history foisted upon them and it goes in one ear and out the other. Decent description, Judy? Yes. That's okay. <laughs> okay. All right. Just wanted to make sure that I had that. Uh, now you have, I understand you, your kids have gone through the unschooling style of learning. Yes. Yes. We started out homeschooling like many people do and, and we found we just never got around to homeschooling. So we played. I had babies and toddler underfoot, so uh, didn't get around much to formal learning. And the kids learned anyways. It was incredible how much they self-studied through their play, their projects, and travel. Did they, by the time they were done, did they generally know much of the same things as the other kids or did each of them have something that they spent most of their time on and at the end of the day one was all about math and one was all about English and like, was the ba the knowledge base that they gleaned was it similar? I would say it was similar and I could see their interest pretty early whether it was um, math or English um, they 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 really followed their passions and you can see that come out in their play and what they choose to do in all their free time. So as I outlined in the book, Unschooling to University, there we followed 30 of our friends and you could see where they would go based on what they would play and what they would do. What happens if an unschooled kid who is being given the keys to sort of drive the car of learning, what happens if they decide one day they don't want to go to quote, quote, school? What if they just don't want to do it that day? Is that okay? 
Absolutely, yes. I, I I have a problem with the concept that we allow kids to learn. Kids are born learners, and when they're six, what we do is we tell them, okay, you have to learn what we want you to learn. At what point do we let kids own their education? We hope to hand it back to them about grade seven, and then we we punish them because they don't take it back anymore. They've been spoon-fed so much. So I've found naturally around age 16, kids really, really look around and think, okay, I got to do a job. I got to have a career. I got to support myself. And then they're very seriously looking at what they might need to go on to university or post-secondary. And, and their brains are mature. They can absorb things really fast. And whatever gaps there were before, they can make it up super, super quick. And you know what? Much of what you just said there, uh, I think, is very deep. I think there's there's a very valid points to there that kids, that they can learn quickly. My, my concern, though, when I hear that is, but we do live in a society that does have expectations and rules and institutions that... Whether we like them or not, once you leave the home, you're going to have to follow into those paths. So does it become difficult if you've not had to follow those rules or learn the same way or learn the same things? Does it become difficult then to start having to do that when you're 17, 18, 19 years old? Well, when kids are that age, they have um, their brain development is very good. Their executive function is good. Um, they start acquiring a very good work ethic on their own. And it's not that we don't follow rules. I mean, homeschoolers have eight social activities a week. So it's, it's, they don't get rules through a school. They get it through girl guides or church or sports teams. I mean, we still get out there and do things. So we, we still fit into um, those constructs of society. The obvious question, I think, then, is, and you mentioned it, is university. What happened? How do you, how when they finish, I assume they have to take some sort of test or something before they would be accepted to show that they have done a certain level. They do have a basic knowledge to be able to get accepted to a university. Yes, yes. A lot of kids do the SATs or their provincial diploma exams or um, the university entrance exams. So, yeah, they do. And generally, how do they do in those things? Do you know? Pretty good. They do, eh? They, I mean, do they get well in? Enough, well enough to get accepted. I mean, all 30 of our friends got accepted, and, and at least 20 of them graduated universities, colleges, and technical schools already. Would you, Is this something that you would propose for everybody, or is this something that you definitely have to have a certain personality and that kids have to have a certain personality to try and or to be able to do? I think all kids want to learn what they want to learn. Um, So, yes, I think it can work for all children. And ultimately, every child owns their education at some point. And, you know, if they don't like what they're taking in school, they, they, some kids act out, tune out, and drop out. So they do take responsibility. So, yeah, I would say it's for all kids. It's like the education version of Timothy Leary. Just without the LSD, we hope. Uh, Judy Arnall, president of the Unschooling Canada Association. Fascinating stuff, Judy. I really appreciate you taking the time to explain it today. Thank you for this. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. 
he is a man who puts a few frequent flyer, flyer miles not only in his own pocket, but on that of the Stanley Cup that he travels around with. His name is Phil Pritchard. He is the guy you know as the keeper of the cup. He's the curator of the Hockey Hall of Fame, and he's a Burlington native who joins us now. Phil, how are you today? God, I'm great. Thank you. And yourself? I'm well. Are you back and now finally unpacked from your summer of cup-related activities? We actually have two more guys to go, but I'm home right now because we're taking the cup to China on Friday with the uh, global games the NHL are having. So really? I am heading over to uh, Beijing and Hong Kong Friday, so I'm actually home and in the office this week. The Cup has been to China before, correct? It never has. It'll Re- be the first time. I th- ah, oh, well, where has it's been to many summer, places over there? summer, actually. We went to Canada, U.S., Denmark, Sweden, Germany, Russia, and Czech Republic, seven countries. And do you, I know there are a number of you who do this. Do you do all the trips or do you get some time off? Yeah, I got, I, I did the European ones this year. Uh, there was a, a great experience because it was the first time it was in Denmark with Lars Eller. Uh, we did two guys in Siberia, actually, uh, just off the coast of the Mongolian border. We were so far out, so 11 <laughs> time zones from here. So it, it was pretty amazing, but... I mean, back to your question, it was an amazing summer with, with the players and the staff, a great group of guys, and, and that's that's why they're Stanley Cup champions, because they're a great group of guys, they're tight-knit, but they sure respect the game and everything about it, and it showed every day this summer when we were on the road with them. Just before I get to that, one more thing about this. When you go to these new places for the first time, do, do you always get a similar response when you go somewhere with the Cup for the very first time? It, it it is pretty amazing now. I mean, obviously, Scott, with as we all know, social media has changed our world and the internet especially. And so the fans, the diehard fans, know everything already. The the casual fans are learning a lot more. Uh, this year in Denmark, like I said, it was the first time there. It was an overwhelming reception uh, right from when we landed in in Copenhagen uh, throughout the whole day and prior to when we left for Sweden the next morning. It, it was great. I'm sure in China it will be unique. Uh, obviously, they're holding, hosting the Winter Olympic Games in 2022, so they are building their winter sports uh, program now, which includes hockey, and Korea just had the Winter Olympics. So that part of the world is is seeing a lot of growth in ice hockey, and I'm sure there's a lot of fans there that, that love this game that is, of ours that has been passed on to all these different countries. So it should be a good experience. I, uh, I think we're to go into the Great Wall of China on mm. Sunday with it, which will be pretty neat. Yeah, uh, no kidding. Yeah, no so kidding. It, it should be great, and I mean, China's a huge tourist area now, so there'll be fans from everywhere there. But I think it'll be very special and very cultural for for everyone that's involved with it. Do you do you know what to expect, or every time you go, so like when you went to Russia with it for the first time a bunch of years ago, like every time you go, do you get a surprise, or do you now know exactly what's going to happen I, generally? I, I, no, you know what, you'd, you'd think you know everything that's going to happen, but then things surprise you, and it's uh, it, it's always amazing to see some unique things done and, and to see the different cultures, and I, I think that's what makes it so special. Scott is this great game of that Canada started has played in eighty I think it's eighty six countries now. So to go over to to a place like Russia or Siberia or Denmark and to see the fans reaction and to see how the game is growing, it's 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 truly amazing and it's it's 
big uh, pat on the back to this game called hockey. Well, and I've said this to you before, and I'm sure I'll say it again, but you have a very unique, unbelievably great job because I can't imagine there's a day you show up with the Stanley Cup that anyone has given you grief. You show up and people are smiling, and that's a great job to have. Yeah, you know what? I I think you hit it straight on. I mean, I guess I'm very fortunate that when we're around, people have a smile on their face. There's not really a stress level. The the big thing about it is we want to make sure we get everyone looked after with photos and that, and somehow, sometimes it's an overwhelming success that there's there's not enough time to get, and, and that's kind of uh, the downfall of, of being a, a popular trophy. But it, but it certainly is unique, and it, it certainly brings a lot of smiles to people's faces. Well, you say that there's never any stress. I do want to ask you about this, because I was reading a piece online today uh, about the Stanley Cup this summer. Now, it goes all over the place. There's a lot of people who are handling it. There's a lot of people who are spending time with it. And uh, it's a very funny piece, probably not funny to you in some cases, but um, uh, it, it would appear anyway that somewhere along the line this year, Stanley took a bit of a pounding, and there appears to be at least in one of these pictures a flat side, a flat side to the bull. Do these things happen when you're traveling around and the guys have it for a day? Is, is it just natural that once in a while something's gonna, there's going to be a little ding here or there? Well, by by all means, and and first of all, the, the cup's 125 years old. So we first got to think, Scott, when you and I are 125, we're going to have some flat spots or some dings or something. I'm hoping. Yeah, exactly. So we're, I mean, we're trying to uh, preserve it and that, and the guys respect it and everything, but it does happen. Like the bowl itself, it it wasn't designed to hoist over your head. It was, it was basically a, a punch bowl from Sheffield, England that Lord Stanley bought, so the thought back then that they'd host it, hoist it over their head and, and let guys drink out of it or things like that, it was probably all foreign to them then. Uh, so, yeah, it, it does get out of the circular look from the top that it is, and it, it does get kind of pushed in in size. Uh, fortunately, we got a great silversmith that can then can repair it, and fingers crossed, we've never had to reach to that point that it's unrepairable, and if it gets to that, I think we'll have to revisit the the cup travels and that because it's one of the greatest things of hockey is the Stanley Cup, and we want to make sure it's around for another 125 years. When it does happen, though, and it's, as you say, like no one's ever doing it maliciously. It would be a little accident at somewhere along the way. Does the does the person who's there, does the player who has it, does he come up and say, "Oh, Phil, um, oops," or do you just get it back at the end of the day and you say, "Oops." Well, you know what? We're with them all throughout the whole day. And, I mean, unfortunately, human error happens sometimes. And it's, you know, the guys slip or, or whatever. It, or it's on a table and the table breaks or something. It's it's an awful feeling for them because they they feel awful for it. Not only because it's happened, but the next guy that's going to get it, it's not going to look perfect. And I, I think the best thing about the Stanley Cup is it's perfectly imperfect, mm. and and that's what makes it unique. It's 35 pounds of silver. It's got things and scratches and all of that, but each one of those tells a story of a Stanley Cup champion, and, and it just adds to the R and tradition, but I think most of all those guys respect everything about it, and and they want to see it be around again, and they want to win it again. Do you, if it does have a ding, especially in the bowl, if the if the circle is not a circle, do you try and push it back into place, or do you leave that for someone else to do? Well, we we do our best. 
uh, I'd love to say I'm a silversmith <laughs> and I can do that, but we have been in corners of buildings or underneath rinks trying to bend it back into shape sometimes. <laughs> and and I, I think I said it earlier, it's it's perfectly imperfect. Yep, yep. It, it is that. So you try and bend it in and you can tell it's, yeah, like I said, I'm not a silversmith. We can't get it perfect, but we do our best, and the player tries, and you, the parents, parent, uh, the players' parents are trying to help and stuff. And it's 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 very comical, but it's very serious and very respectful. And and everybody is like in a sweating mode because they want to make sure it looks great because it's it's going to be on display, and and that's why the party's there because of the Stanley Cup. So the the feature attraction's got to look great. Is this, by the way, there are two Stanley Cups, correct? Correct, yeah. Is, which one is the one that travels for this? Is it the Display Cup or is it the Real Cup? That's the Real Cup. So whenever you see the Stanley Cup outside of the Hockey Hall of Fame, it's the real one, the one that gets presented on the red carpet at the end of the season, the one that Gordie Howe won or the one that Bobby Orr drank out of or Guy Lafleur or Lemieux, Crosby, etc. That's the one that Ovechkin and the Capitals had this summer. So that... That's the one with all the history. The one on display at the hall is there for museum purposes only and for when the guests to come through and be, enjoy the full guest experience, which includes the Stanley Cup. Okay, so now there are rules around the cup, and I don't want to go into them all because we've done them before about who can lift it overhead and that kind of thing, but there are also things that guys want to do when they have their day with the cup. And again, I'm looking at a bunch of pictures on the websites. There have been, so this year, walk me through some of the things. You had at least one guy eating cereal out of it. Yeah, we uh, had cereal out of it. We had a horse was eating out of it. Sorry? You had a horse eating out of it. We had a horse eating out of it. We had a cow eating out of it in the Bavarian Mountains in Germany. Uh, obviously we've had different beverages out of it and that. And I think that's what makes it great, Scott, is because wherever we are, the cultures we're in, different foods or different drinks get out of it. When uh, I told you about the Bavarian Mountain, well, the, up in the mountains, the cows live up there, and they're part of Philip Gubauer, who was one of the goalies for the Capitals. It was part of his everyday life. And it, it was so neat to see... And such a smile on his face when a cow came over to see what this thing was. <laughs> and he stuck his head in it. It was great. So it, it, is, it is special every time the guys have something out of it because it, it means a lot to them. Uh, but I, I think more than anything, they respect when they do get that opportunity to put something in it. That they make sure that it's safe. It's it's fine. We had pierogies out of it and uh, hot dog and fries. I see hot dog and fries, pierogies. Yeah, it's it's all sorts. Alex Ovechkin's face for several hours. <laughs> yeah, Alex Ovechkin. <laughs> yeah, he did. So so I with think this, if the cup could talk. It would have well, great stories to share with us. It may have doubled its stories just this summer by the sounds of it. <laughs> but yeah, what so true, and you know what, and, and that goes back to the social media thing as well. Because you're at a party and people are have their cameras and are taking photos of everything going, so it, it's well documented along the tour. And it, to me, the tour is one of the greatest things and greatest traditions in sports. So as long as everyone respects it, we can keep doing this tour. So what is there ever a, some time, and you don't have to say the name of the player, we don't want to embarrass anybody, but has there been anything that has been asked or that they want to do that you have actually had to say, mm, you know what, let's pass on that one? Players, no, never for a player. really for players' buddies. Well, that's a whole different story. In what way? Well, it's it's amazing because the player gets his day with it, and 
he understands that, you know, let's say he's from Hamilton and he grew up playing Hamilton minor hockey. So he wants to give back to minor hockey by doing a fundraiser or bringing it to rinks or taking it to hospitals to his school and that. All the time, his buddies are at his house drinking all his beer, waiting for him to come back for the party to start. <laughs> so the the party for them has started long before the cup gets there, and those are the guys that you got to watch. And not that they're bad guys or anything; they're just they're thrilled for their buddy, but they're not with him the entire day as he's there for the fundraiser and for the photo session and meeting the mayor and all of that. So they're raring to go when everyone else is. We always say the red flag guys. So do you have a do you have a little speech that you give to the friends to say here's what we're not going to do with this? We do. When we uh, you know what's great when we we meet the guys in the morning, uh, it, it's always great. We we sit down with them, kind of walk them through their day of what we think might happen and what won't. Give them the some hey here's some rules about being a Stanley Cup champion. You're the guy that can lift it. You're the guy that can pour the drinks for it all. But at the end of it all, we say, hey, we want you to have a good time. So enjoy yourself. Uh, just Let's just keep this in mind. And, hey, you're, you're thrilled for us to be here, but tonight you'll be just as happy as when we leave because it's going to be a long day, but it's going to be a special day. A couple more things. Do you uh, do you go on the? T- and there's other guys, as I say, because these are you say it. These are long days. Like you couldn't possibly fill do day after day after day after day with this without getting some time off during the summer. Oh, by, by all means, I mean we did the European tour. I think it was 14 days. Uh, it was six countries, nine flights, 11 time zones. It was tough. When we got back, uh, Mario and myself got back from it on the Saturday night. I. I got home. I tried to stay up as long as possible and get some sleep. And it's it's an amazing time with the guys, and they understand it's long too. But it's their day, so you make the and go from there. You've seen an awful lot of these by now. Is there one? Is there one thing that you've seen with the cup? Somebody with the cup, either because it's hilarious or because it was touching or something else. Is there one thing that always stands out to you that you saw? Well, there's actually a couple right off the bat when you say that. Timo Solani's party when he won with the Anaheim Ducks in in Helsinki, Finland, it it was unbelievable. For those uh, listeners that have been to Finland in the summer, they have 24-hour sunlight. So it's it's a totally different party. Uh, It usually ends in Finland in a sauna party where you sit in the sauna and then jump in the ocean, (laughs) which is always special. I I think the touching part is when guys take it to loved ones that have passed away at a cemetery. Mm. It's, it's so powerful. It, uh, it's pretty amazing. Uh, this year with uh, a lot of guys that did that with, with brothers or sisters or passed on or parents or grandparents or coaches. And you really see why they're a Stanley Cup champion because they, they get it, they understand it, but they know it was much more than them that is why they won it. They, they had help and they want to thank and and do everything they can for these other people. Mm. And, and that's what makes them a Stanley Cup champion, I think. You're not allowed to leave its side. Does that mean that when it's in Finland that you have to be in the sauna with the cup wearing your <laughs> blue blazer? Yeah. Well, 
I have a blue bathing suit, and it's not a speedo, so it looks okay actually. <laughs> uh, before I let you go, I got one more question: Is this sure. cup going to survive if the Capitals were to win again? If 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 Alex Ovechkin wins this again, do you have to build a third cup just sort of almost as a disposable Stanley Cup for what they would do to it? Well, you know what? I mean, you think back to June when they won in Vegas, and it was so amazing standing on the uh, ice when he accepted it from Commissioner Bettman and the excitement he had and the excitement he showed the crowd and all through that night and his time with it, it was it was great. And I, I think people forget sometimes that, that hockey players are, have emotions too, and, and Alex let it all out. <laughs> and, and what a, and and what a city to start in. Oh, yeah, I, exactly. Las Vegas. I remember, uh, I think it was like 4.30 in the morning, we were still at this bar in uh, the MGM Grand and we were getting on a flight at 8 to fly back to Washington where the reveal party was starting and thinking, and Alex is going full force with the entire team. <laughs> and it, it, they were such a unit, though. It was it was great. And everyone was there in the morning on the bus ready to get on the plane and, and fly to Washington. I can tell you it was a pretty quiet plane ride. <laughs> Yeah, the until loudest. We landed, until we landed, then it started all over again. The loudest person on the plane was probably the Stanley Cup that morning. <laughs> exactly. You know what was funny? Quick uh, before we go, when we landed in Washington, uh, we got off the plane, and Alex had his car there, and he asked if I if I wanted to come to his house with him, and I said sure. So myself and him, his a couple of his buddies, his uh, his wife. And we took the Stanley Cup and the Conn Smythe Trophy, and we went to his house. And as we pulled in, he has an automatic garage door opener. He opened the garage, and he yelled something in Russian, and his dog came running out, and the dog was so excited to see him. Obviously, it was like Alex, all excited the night before. His dog was so excited. He got a photo with him and the dog and the cup, and he gave me the cup back, and he said, I'll see you at the party later. (laughs) And I thought, that is so cool because this dog obviously means a whole bunch to him. Phil Pritchard, the keeper of the cup, Burlington native. Always love having you on the show. Thanks for doing this today. Really appreciate it. Hey, anytime, Scott. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.